Hey everybody, today's episode is all about Barbie and Oppenheimer, but I have a confession to make at the very beginning, and that is that I haven't seen either of them. I've been away, I've been on the road doing stand-up comedy at Splendor in the Grass all weekend. Thanks for everyone who came and saw the shows. I spoke to a bunch of you afterwards and I appreciate it. This week coming up, I'm also on the road. I'm opening for Randy, the hilarious comedian slash puppet, um, all over New South Wales. I'll be at the Cube in Wodonga on Wednesday the 26th. I'll be at the Music Lounge Wollongong on the 27th. That's two shows. I'll be at the Enmore Theatre in Sydney on Friday the 28th, also two shows. City Hall in Newcastle on the 29th. And... Lakecock Street Theatre in Gosford on the 30th of July. Also, the week afterwards, I'm in Melbourne doing basement comedy from August 3 to 5. So that is the Thursday to the Saturday night shows. I'm hosting all of those. Come and check me out at one of those things if you feel like it. This episode, I will not be featured in because I thought it was disrespectful to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer when I hadn't seen them. Lord knows, I wish I could have spent eight hours sitting in a cinema next to Alexi Toliopoulos watching the big pink flick and the thing about the bomb instead of chasing my dream of being a working stand-up comedian around this goddamn country. But alas... Fate dealt the cards it dealt. I am become a comedian, destroyer of vibes. <laughs> Fuck. So sit back and relax and enjoy this goddamn Barbie Heimer spectacular. Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Features with Cameron James and Alexi Toliopoulos. But there's a twist to that title today. There is no Cameron James. There is only Alexi Toliopoulos from the title. And joining me in Cameron's stead to talk about the past, the present and the future of popular culture. It is one of my dearest friends there, a fantastic culture critic for The Guardian Australia. It is Michael Sun. Hello. It is always an honour to beach <laughs> off with you, Alexi. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, one that I was very excited to get you mm-hmm, in on mm-hmm. because a lot of people talk about the Barbenheimer double feature. <laughs> yes, they are. It is the talk of the town. I don't think cinema has been at the center of a conversation like this. I don't know. Maybe in my fucking lifetime. No, come on. Sin- <laughs> sin- since the Dark Knight and Mamma Mia, surely. Oh, of like- course, yes. I did have. I did live through that. I did live through <laughs> that era as well. But um, it's really weird. Like you know, I, I do have almost this fear that like, is this the last time that film is going to be? No, the talking point surely like this? not. No, absolutely not. I feel like, like, like I actually feel like this kind of stuff comes back so often, right? Mm-hmm. And then every time it happens, people are like, "It's the first time, <laughs> it's the last time." But then we just get it like every five or ten years. It's been so sensational because I think that this is this is truly. I've been saying this on the podcast for a while that Barbie in itself has got the marketing campaign. Mm. Like one I've not seen forever. Like I think Truly. it is. It's a historically great marketing campaign, and the movies have just hit over the weekend, mm-hmm. and we are now seeing the actual effects that this marketing campaign has had. Yeah, and it is astonishing. Let me. We're, we're box office focused on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're box office. I got heads. the stats. Don't you, you worry. Got the stats? I got the stats loaded up. Because what I saw was Barbie is in Australia. Yeah. Are you looking at Australian stats or worldwide? I got both, don't worry. Okay, well, in Australia, what my estimate or what I'd heard yesterday was, we we're looking at pretty much $20 million. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that true? Let me check for you the stats right now. So, these stats come from Universal directly. So, wow. you know, like, I don't know how much they've been massaged. We've but got that Universal DM. Exactly. $21.5 <laughs> million at the odds box of oh Barbie. Oh, my gosh. And then Oppenheimer did $9.4 million in Australia. These are both humongous numbers, but yeah. Barbie is basically on track to be top 10 highest grossing movies ever in Australia. Which is insane. Which is which is genuinely insane. I guess, like, not unexpected given, as you said, like, the actual, like, the, like, like the actual all-consuming nature of the marketing mm-hmm. campaign, which I think people 
are generally a little sick of. I'm not going to lie. Mm. I feel like there was some sentiment where people were kind of like, I'm just going to watch this to expel everything from my mind now. <laughs> it's like months of build up and it's like almost, I have to just purge this from my mind and never say the word Barbenheimer ever again in my life. <laughs> I think it will become the Oxford English Language Dictionary <laughs> Word of the Year. No, 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 no. And it will be the meaning for double features now. We will be calling so that. So true. It's the Brangelina name Absolutely. For, for, for like a double bill. You're so right. I think... Um, um, I think it, it's been it's been pretty amazing. Like you know, we're film fans, we're film fanatics, we're freaking mm-hmm. cinephiles, we're nerds. Yes. I'll admit to it, but I think you are DB. I am DB. I famously. think about that line every day. By the way, <laughs> like I actually say it so often. I am DB. I think we got to change our names. So we've got our initials will be DB. <laughs> Dykel Bun. I think it's a cool name. Dykel Bun. I, <laughs> I love mean, it. I don't know I if we can it. say that, but it's cool. I mean, I'm 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 single handedly giving you a free pass to say that. <laughs> I think it has been really cool to see, like, basically people that are not like us even using the word double feature and planning their weekend around seeing a movie. People are getting dressed up. I think it's been been really exciting. It's been cool to see film come to the forefront of discussion again. Mm -hmm. I think uh, what I guess interests me most is now... We're talking about the impact. We're talking about these films coming out. Later in the podcast, we're going to talk about, um, you know, the actual films themselves. Seeing, like, the online takes has been fucking crazy, dude. It's been crazy. I think it's been crazy Bracker's derogatory. Mm. Like, it's 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 very much like every take I see kind of... <laughs> I mean, it's like this with every discourse, yeah. right? Where every discourse gets to a point where it's just like, you actually just want to KYS. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, if I see like, it's like, if I see another tweet about, you know, like Oppenheimer racist Japanese voices, yeah. like, like Barbie, but like, like, I'm literally just like, please, I, I need a reprieve. Yeah. I think um, that Oppenheimer, what you're talking about, especially, I was just like, you know, Japanese cinema exists and they've been making r- movies right, for a long right. time. Like if you watch Godzilla, you're going to get a lot of stuff about the, like the same kind of atomic bombing that you would want from <laughs> Oppenheimer. You know why though? Like it's, it's definitely partially my fault because like, I I like follow way too many Americans mm-hmm. on Twitter, mm-hmm. and and as a result, like my entire feed is like often just like, you know, like pe- people in the US going off because they haven't watched a single piece of international cinema ever mm-hmm. in their life. Um, so maybe I should just log off. I think you got to stay logged on. Wow. It's too late for you. If you unplug, it's too late. I think it's we're terminal. just see your heart rate just start <laughs> dropping. You're gonna start flatlining if you unplug. Yeah, I don't. I think you got to stay on there. Well, well, in fact, I think you got to get a chip. You. I think you got to get a chip put in your brain. I think that's the next step. Okay, is there anything else we want to talk about? The impact of these two films coming out together. Like, do you think that? Do you think that there is any actual worth in trying to replicate similar campaigns? Because I don't. I feel like it was such a unique set mm. of circumstances that led these films together. It's Christopher Nolan had to leave WB. Yes, WB exactly. had to be jealous. They had to put <laughs> a film up against it. And then it had to be an auteur, or I guess semi-auteur-driven project. Well, we can discuss that in a little we bit. We will be discussing that later. <laughs> we can discuss that in a little bit. Um, I... Or per- let me just say, yeah. personality-driven projects. Personality-driven projects, for sure. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of, like, just this stat I found quite insane, actually. In the, mm-hmm. At the US box office... Um, where Barbie made one five five million and Oppenheimer oh made God. eighty million and opening weekend. Opening weekend. Apparently, it's the first time in box office history that two movies opened to eighty million dollars plus each. Wow, which actually is pretty insane. And like you know, I feel like Greta Gerwig has done what um, what Tenet never could. Yeah, what Mission Impossible never could. Yeah. She saved cinema. I think so because it's like. It also shows to serve like what how underserved female audiences are, mm-hmm. where that this is like you know not even rom coms they don't even make really rom coms on the big screen anymore. True, and this is like a female focused audience led film that's like immediately doing gangbusters. I don't usually use that word gangbusters. <laughs> it's not part of my everyday lexicon. But when a situation, I don't know if I believe that. Like <laughs> when I think about you. Mm-hmm. I think the word gangbusters. Okay, well, let me put it in different words. This <laughs> this is the bee's knees. Okay, great, 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 great. <laughs> um, this is, like, I think it goes to show that uh, immediately this audience was like, okay, we all want to go see this. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were, 
you know, I saw some people like kind of expecting this film to not do so well. I'm like, that's crazy. How can you not think this is going to be a billion dollar? I think this is going to cross a billion quite easily. I think that's kind of like the people who are betting against the success are like the incorrect contrarian takes, I Mm -hmm. feel. I mean, like that's just like being contrarian for the sake of it because I'm like, obviously it's going to make money. Yeah. Is it good is a different question entirely that we'll get into, but like- I think betting against the box office success was always going to be this, like, doomed project, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also insane to me that cinemas are fully sold out again. Yeah. Like, last night, um, my partner forced me to see Barbie again, <laughs> um, which, again, if you wait, like, two minutes, we'll be discussing it more. But, like, every single session was fully sold out. Mm-hmm. Like, we were trying to get tickets for, you know, like, like, a session, like, an hour away because I love to not book tickets. Yeah. Um and we couldn't oh my like gosh. like we had to sit in row A and then have oh, that, wow. and then have that kind of view where it's like every close up face you just see the chin huge <laughs> and the forehead tiny you in the gotta background. crank the neck back <laughs> you gotta bring a special pillow so you can get horizontal somehow in that seat I felt like I was on a freaking aeroplane <laughs> like like I like halfway th- halfway through the movie I discovered that you could lean the chair back oh. and I was like fully forty five degrees peering <laughs> up at the screen it was it was it was blissful oh my gosh I think it's uh, I had similar situation where I couldn't make the screening because this is how how built like how big the hype was mm. i was two hours late to reply to the email like a simple <laughs> clicks you need to do to get to the premiere and it had already sold out completely i was what? immediate waitlist i was the immediate waitlist for the screening and i was like okay yikes. don't they know who you are don't they know i've got a new podcast <laughs> uh don't they know that i'm re-entering the podcast game to talk about popular culture exactly and surely this is going to be a topic for one of the projects <laughs> But I, uh, so then I went on just like a Friday afternoon because I was finishing my work pretty early. Oh, you went as a lay person. I went and I have one of the most unbiased opinions in Australian media. I paid for my ticket. Wow. I did not wow. even buy snacks from the cinema. Wow. I went elsewhere. I went to a small Asian grocery store and I got some international snacks. That I is brought so anti capitalist of you, dude. I know. That's that. And I that's would say success. perhaps doing that process has led me to a different opinion than. <laughs> that I've seen reiterated throughout the media mm-hmm. and one that I think that you might share as well reading your review okay, that you put up for ABC uh, Arts um, shall we get into our discussion let's do it let's should we do begin it. with Barbie and then we'll do an Oppenheimer dessert love it okay we're talking about and Oppenheimer is the dessert just to be clear and it's <laughs> a rich dessert a lot of people think the pink sparkles of Barbie lead you to believe it's a dessert I don't think so my desserts have a little bit more character Mm -hmm. a little bit more richer you're a dark chocolate man what can I say (laughs) maybe even a bomb Alaska I'm so sorry I'm so sorry (laughs) okay let's get into our discussion of Barbie hi Barbie hi Ken Barbies my heels are on the ground What do I have to do? You can go back to your regular life or know the truth about the universe. The first one, you have to want to know. Barbie in the real world. Yes. Everything is backwards here. Girls hate me. Who are you? Oh. And I keep getting arrested. I also just learned to cry. First, I got one tear, and then I got a whole bunch. Barbie, July 21st, rated PG-13. So, Barbie, it's come out. It is a huge sensation. You have seen it? I have seen it. I've seen it twice. You've seen it twice. For better or for worse. How, Probably okay. the latter. I think, how do we even begin discussing this? Because I think, um, let's talk about, like, what was, were you anticipating, Barbie? Were you excited for it? Okay. I feel like there was a point, I mean, I, I was less anticipating it than I would say it was kind of like when I looked at Barbie versus Oppenheimer, I think instinctively I was like, I'm going to like Barbie more mm. out of these two movies. Like, this movie looks fun mm-hmm. and camp, and I guess some of the marketing, like, nodded to, like, the girls and the gays, perhaps. And mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I'm going to like this. So I guess, like, slightly anticipated, but also I think I am such a sucker for marketing, unfortunately, <laughs> that, like, it's very hard for me to, like, really peel myself away from hype around movies, mm. um, which makes me a terrible critic. Um, <laughs> but, like, I almost feel like this time, towards the end of the marketing campaign, I think we were talking about this earlier as well, the feeling kind of soured a little bit. Mm. So, because, like, there, was, there had been just, like, this pink avalanche, um, as has been described, of hype and of campaign and marketing... I think it almost, like, the public mood kind of went from, like, fever pitch. And I think just towards the end, I think the sentiment turned a little bit Mm. where there was some kind of, like, mood against it. 
Yeah, I kind of feel similarly because of the two movies coming out, I'm a much bigger Greta Gerwig fan than my mm. Christopher Nolan. I think that Little Women is an instant masterpiece classic that will be like known as a classic of that era. We can we can discuss that in a bit as well. Okay, like- <laughs> of course. And I think Ladybirds are also fantastic. I love those two movies. I've been following Greta Gerwig since her freaking Mumblecore days. Yes, she was yes, one yes. of my stars when I was in high school. I'm like, wow, Mumblecore is the future of filmmaking. I can't wait to become <laughs> a Mumblecore filmmaker. So I've always had like my great big hopes attached to her. Christopher Nolan, I... I guess I like most of his movies, but I never get excited about them very rarely or anything. Well, do you think Tenet saved cinema? Is no, no, no. Mm. You know, it says Tenet, it all, doesn't it? Exactly. Tenet was not my cup of tea, let's just say that. And uh, I think with this pairing, it's really interesting to have like a pairing of films come out that have like completely swept up and they will... I wonder if they'll forever be associated with each other. I That's what I'm kind of thinking now. Like, do you think... That uh, do you think that will be the case? Like in ten years' time, will we still be thinking about these films together? Will I they feel like lead- instinctively no, because I think that you know, like right now, everyone's like Barbie, Hammer, blah blah blah, etc., etc. But I think that ultimately, it feels like Barbie is the real zeitgeist-defining movie. And I mean, like, not even going into like, like you know, its its qualities or its takeaways, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I genuinely just think that it's been such a cultural moment that. This is the one that people are going to be ta- referencing in 10 years' time. Whereas I actually do think that Oppenheimer, despite I actually really loved the movie itself, I'm not sure that that's going to be mentioned in the same breath um, as like something which changed cinema or, or changed the cultural mood around cinema. Yeah, because I think the difference being like Barbie, it was... Barbie was like a complete capturing of multiple facets at once, which is like the right creative team, mm-hmm. like the the exact right creative team for the exact right time, finding some kind of synergy with the brand and then utilizing a great marketing campaign to make everybody aware that it exists. Like there's probably not a person like in that lives in a city or a town or anything that doesn't know Barbie <laughs> exists. Like there might be a guy like lost at sea or something that yeah. has not heard that there's a Barbie movie happening. No, at least one person doesn't know that Barbie's happening and that, and, and, and that is Mr. Gerald Manane, <laughs> famous Australian author who I discovered this morning doesn't use the internet. Wow. So he didn't know Barbie Doesn't happens? have a computer. So What the hell? I, I think there is safely one person in Australia who knows that Barbie doesn't exist. Does he not read Empire Magazine at least? Clearly not. Clearly not. Okay, interesting. But I think Oppenheimer as well, we are seeing Christopher Nolan, I think is probably the only like director auteur alongside Quentin Tarantino where they are the franchise. Like even Mm -hmm. people like Jordan Peele, Martin Scorsese that are like name brand known directors. But I don't think they, I only think Tarantino and Nolan are the ones that can turn those films into blockbusters. So I wonder if we'll start seeing people trying to leverage that and turn other like big biopic epics into blockbusters as well. But I don't think anyone's ever really successfully been able to do it. Well, I feel like it's because like it's it's a really hard sell to a studio as well. Mm. So I think unless you yourself are the brand, mm. like a Nolan or I guess like like a Tarantino, like I don't think any studio is going to want to fund that kind of project without a guaranteed return. But let's let's get into the actual movie mm-hmm. movies themselves. I feel like we've been yeah. talking we've been around talking this a lot. Yeah, Alessi, give me your view of Barbie. Well, let's just say. Um, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to begin because there's a lot to love in this. I think my overall instant reaction is that Barbie is a mess and <laughs> usually I can be drawn into a mess. Mm-hmm. And you know, you and I have talked about film a lot yeah. and often uh, you we will surprise each other with like how much we can love something because there's one element that you just love yeah. and you just can't and you can't associate that with anything else. I think with Barbie, there's a few elements that I don't like that are stopping me from really embracing it at all. Okay. So I think I'm kind of like mixed, mixed, I would say, mixed. And perhaps there's a spoonful more of negativity in this recipe, <laughs> in this mixture that I've got concocting. But I would say I'm pretty much mixed. It's a little long for a commercial. Commercial is usually around 30 seconds long. <laughs> uh, but this is about two hours. I think positives, I think that it is funny. I think that it is really ambitious for what it's trying to do. And I think that should be admired, especially like a filmmaker moving into studio filmmaking, moving into uh, corporate filmmaking as well. It's a really ambitious way to kind of make a film like that and also to 
find an emotional core for it. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a few elements that kind of the mix just doesn't work harmoniously for me, and so it doesn't all quite add up to it. How are you feeling about it in your two, after your two deployments into Barbie Land? After my two deployments, like I look, I, I feel like I came out of the cinema um, of the Sydney premiere being very very definitively like this is bad. Um, and then I came out of my second screening being like, this is bad. <laughs> um, but I will say, look, like, like if we want to talk about the positives, I mean, I think Ryan Gosling as Ken is getting unanimously lauded and for good reason. I think he's sensational and I, yeah. I actually hope he like wins the Oscar. I think it is an incredible performance. I it's, think he has a shot for I sure. So. For sure. It's very rare that we get a, a really broad comedic performance mm-hmm. are honoured in that way the one that always comes to mind is Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda yep, sure, I sure, think sure. this kind of sings in the same tone but it's just such a committed performance to like absolute buffoonery and it's that committed, is beautiful and it's committed in a way that I actually don't think Margot Robbie is even though she was the one who you know conceptualised the idea of a Barbie movie at all and was the one kind of working with Mattel in the early stages I just feel like Ryan Gosling kind of has that Je ne sais quoi, if you will. Um, But I also think the script, like, favours Ken Mm. in a way that I think that part of the script probably is one of, like, my only... Like, the only things in the movie that I I quite liked Mm. was this kind of Ken turning into an incel, MRA, Andrew Tate type. I thought that was very funny because it speaks to, like, Ken is a doll with no personality. Exactly. And then what can he do but fall down this rabbit hole? It just Mm. made total sense. And I think it's like that stroke of genius that makes this movie work to four people. Yes, and I feel like it was kind of one of the only parts of the movie that felt really contemporary to me. Because, you know, like, obviously, like, I mean, <laughs> the idea of, like, male patriarchy has, has been around forever, of course. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the like the specific image that, that kind of Ken portrays in here, you know, he's, like, got the full-length mink coat mm-hmm. he and the looks, boxing shorts. He's styled after Stallone. He's styled after <laughs> Arnie. I think it was I was going to say he's styled after Andrew Tate, who I guess gets mm-hmm. his gets his like references from that classic yep. 80s, 90s idea of masculinity as yeah. well. Um, and I think it's a really... I actually think it's perfectly distilled. Like, they perfectly distilled this idea of, like, what masculinity is now and then cartoonified it, characterized it, and just distilled it down to, like, a really interesting, perfect key images and then threw a character mm-hmm. that... I, I just think it's actual genius. I think it's actual <laughs> genius the way they were able to do that. But then we have the rest of the movie, right? Mm. Where, you know, like, my kind of take on this movie ultimately is that... Even in the tagline, it says it, right? Where it's like, this is a movie for people who love Barbie. This is a movie for people mm. that hate Barbie. It, re- it really tries to aim extremely wide. And mm. then I think that's why you end up with quite a muddled script in the end where it tries to hit all these different target audiences, yeah. but then doesn't really quite succeed at any of them. Yeah. I mean, like... Well, I think it has, it has succeeded. <laughs> it has really succeeded whether you it's or su- I like it or not. It succeeded financially. Yeah. I think to me it like hasn't succeeded conceptually mm. maybe. Um and that's not to like shit on like every <laughs> every person who's like buying a ticket to yeah. Barbie. I mean like go and see it and save cinema I guess. Um but I think for me what like what's what's really telling for me is that in the in my second time watching it it was a cinema that was like had a bunch of kids in it like there with their parents and stuff and no one was laughing. Oh, wow. Which I thought was, like, actually quite surprising because at the premiere that I was at, obviously people were, you know, big whoops, big laughs. Big, we got like, the whoops. Exactly. We got the whoops, big engagement. But I think in in just, like, a general public screening, it was, like, almost completely silent throughout the wow. entire movie. And I think that, to me, kind of proves that the jokes don't really land. It's weird because it's... I don't know what if it's aimed for kids because watching mm. it, I was just like, there's a few things I would probably laugh at as a kid, but am I, like, laughing at... Uh, the Godfather being referenced. <laughs> Am I laughing at like a 2001 A Space Odyssey pastiche? I think um, to me, a lot of the humor really works, but then a lot of it, I don't know, it kind of like was sitting in this line between like reference humor and then it being like character-based humor. 
I would say comedically, the one thing that really did not work for mm-hmm. me was, uh, and let it be known, I've gone on record, I fucking adore this man. He is essential to the development of my taste in comedy in some way. Yes. I actually really think Will Ferrell was like a miscast <laughs> of the century because- Who would you have cast instead? I would have gone straight. I would have gone absolutely go, this is, we're getting Michael Douglas. <laughs> we're getting Michael Keaton. I know Michael Keaton and Michael Douglas, they have the same name. I know Michael Keaton was born as Michael Douglas. He changed his name to Michael Keaton to get a SAG after card. But I think that, um, I actually think that uh, he's already done this fucking thing in the Lego movie. He did exactly the same thing. I would think it was unimaginative casting. And there's a lot of imagination going on in this movie. And I think that there, to me, there's not enough tonal difference between the Mattel world and the Barbie land world. And I think they could have gone like, yeah, it's, it's, it's we got to make it crazy and see, like really serious to make it funny and silly and get that juxtaposition going. But I think that's why it came across as it was trying to hit like this this widespread kids audience, right? Because in the real world, you almost get these like, um, like capers indebted to, I guess, Spy Kids or something. You know, it like very felt like that genre of sleepover, daycare, like 2000s movie where everything in the real world is so heightened and so silly, hence the Will Ferrell casting. Yeah. Let's go John Goodman. Get John Goodman in there or something. Exactly. I think, I don't know, just that didn't work for me and it kind of made the, the comedy feel lopsided. I think, mm. I don't know, for me, that just was where, that's probably the thing that pulls me away from it mostly. And then it being, I think, I mean, the the idea of like this corporate kitsch and Mm. like this uh, intentional stab at camp leaves me feeling very bleak. I don't know how else to describe it. I think it's quite a depressing idea, this idea of like corporate kitsch. Yeah. That just, it doesn't quite land. As beautiful as the aesthetic of this film is, like it has obviously all these beautiful references to like Demi and- Jacques Tati is in there as well. I don't know. There's something about like utilizing those things for something so corporate. And I feel like this is, I think what it boils down to me is like this has a French look but it has an American heart <laughs> where capitalism can solve whatever internal problems you have can be solved by capitalism. And I think that's kind of like what is I'm butting up against this, against with this movie so much. Mm. And I think that there is something admirable and quite beautiful in the way this film is connecting with people with its emotional core and the way that he's speaking to this female experience, I think is really quite beautiful and admirable and to do that through a comedy, I think is to me quite exciting. And especially to see a big, broad blockbuster comedy. We have not seen something like this in a long time and something connects so deeply with people like this in a long time. That gets me really excited. But I think it's just something in the mixture that where they just don't work harmoniously for me. I can love a messy movie, but there's something about this that's just like not all lining up. And perhaps my thoughts will change in a review on another yeah. sitting, but I don't think it will be in cinemas again for me. It also, I mean, like, it makes me think of this thing where, like, like you, I feel like I can appreciate that there are so many people who have really connected with this movie. But another part of me is kind of like, you, like, you deserve better. <laughs> like, like you should want better for yourself, right? Because, especially because I think the actual politics in this movie feel extremely outdated to me. You know, mm. in the review, I said that it felt very much like this 2016 vision of what feminism was. Um, but it actually feels even earlier than that. It feels like almost like a 2000s vision, like, in the sense that the big political climax of the movie happens when America Ferreira's character delivers a five-minute monologue, essentially centered around, you know, how difficult it is to be a woman and the kind of contradictions involved in, like, what womanhood entails. But all of that, it's like, it it feels like it's treading very familiar ground. And then that kind of serves as the crux in the movie, um, without spoiling anything, that kind of serves as the crux of the movie to kind of galvanize, like, every single person in Barbie land around this, like, one core issue and it just feels really washed out to me. Like, it doesn't feel contemporary at all, especially when combined with, I mean, we've been talking about this as well, like this like corporate Mattel intrusion into the movie. I also find, like, read this quite interesting thing where, you know, 
people are people are saying or, or like it's easy to view this movie as subversive because it portrays Mattel as these quote unquote corporate villains or these like suited bumbleheads who are all men essentially. But then that kind of that kind of usage of portraying the advertiser as villainous has like a long history in advertising. Like there's this like kind of classic American ad, I think, um, for Isuzu, the car brand, where the entire ad is in the, in the face of like a 30 seconds, portrays the car salesman as like, you know, really oily and like really disgusting and like really like, you know, like a snake. And after that ad came out, sales of Isuzu cars kind of just like skyrocketed in, Ameri- in America. Because there's some sort of honesty in... Exactly. Mm. But it's this kind of like fake honesty, right? Where it's like, oh, like, like we're so self-aware that, that, that we can tell you that we're actually the bad guys here. And by yeah. doing that, it's, it's almost like a form of image laundering. Wow. I think, um, I mean, that's the stuff that I kind of was feeling about it. Yeah. There's a lot of earnestness to it. And it's like this mm. kind of like pairing of irony and earnestness that I think is like, uh, it's an odd pairing. And I think it can, I think it can work. And it appears to have worked for most people. Mm. Most people I'm seeing absolutely loving this movie. And I feel almost strange being like, well, what, what am I not getting about this thing where it can really work? But maybe it's just like, you know, my cinephile brain can't turn off going like, well, why are they using Jacques Tati to represent the real <laughs> world? And why is that corporate? That doesn't feel like a real world uh, thing. But it's also yeah. just like... Never apologize to your brain, Alexi. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that, the in fact, the takeaway of the movie? Like, mm. It's um, true. I don't know. There, is there anything else that you really loved about this movie or anything that you kind of wish they had done? I, I wish... Look... I kind of wish that Greta Gerwig didn't take on this project, mm. which I think sounds, you know, like sounds quite harsh. But I do feel like, I mean, there's no way for this movie to really have worked because of Mattel's quote-unquote villainy in the mm. real world. You know, like the Mattel CEO has given interviews where he said it would be disastrous if Barbie ever became a parody, you know? So from Mattel's POV, mm. it was always going to be... Quite earnest. Quite earnest and an ad. Yeah. So it's like, no matter how much irony, how many references to like The Godfather and Stephen mm. Malkmus and Proust you can put in the movie, it's still <laughs> going to, invent, like at the end of the day, be an ad. We shouldn't just praise the movie because it's the best version of an ad. You know, like at the end of the day, it's still it's it still plays as this like corporate product, right? And just because it is the best version of a corporate product that that could have existed doesn't mean that it's as good as a film. Wow, Michael, I absolutely adore you. That's uh, everything I've been trying to kind of figure out and say. I think that's you've distilled it really nicely. Thank you, thank you. And let it be known, yeah, you can cancel us for not liking a movie. And I have been canceled. Like there, have, <laughs> there have been attempts on on my life. I'll tell you that much. But I but, okay. Actually, one interesting thing that I want to talk mm-hmm. about is that kind of the like when I posted my thoughts mm-hmm. on the movie. Yeah, I'm a serial fucking poster. Um, there was kind of this like. Like, there were two camps of people, I would say. There was, like, one group group of people who were, like, maybe, like, similar in age to me who kind of, like, replied and were like, I really agree with you. Like, this is everything that I've been thinking as well. And then I would say that people who were just a little bit older, like, literally, like, you know quote-unquote millennials, I yep. would say. Like yourself, my Alexi, age, yeah. you can speak for your generation. Yes, I'll speak for my generation. I apologize um, on my behalf. The response from kind of that demographic has been a little bit more, I guess, lukewarm. It's like people being like, oh, like this is really spicy. All my friends loved it. Yeah. Whereas I think the general consensus amongst people who I know has been heaps more tepid towards this film. So what's the kind of generational thing going on? Yeah, I wonder what it is because it is because there does feel like there is a split. Partly, this film has stuff to say about uh, between like gender discourse, which mm-hmm. a difference between men and women. It has stuff to say, I guess, moderately to some degree about race as well. But then I think it's also like it doesn't have anything to say about class. It's like hiding that from it, and it's. I think there's a lot of people that. This is an openly political film. Like yes. it's not like, you know, it's it's political. It's a political movie. And so I think it is it has to be interpreted in a political way to a degree. Yes, well I think that's why we're even having this kind of conversation about a dolly movie. Sorry. About a movie exactly, about dolly. Exactly. Like about big doll, right? Exactly. Um, and I would say every year more than often than not the 
biggest film of the year, it is a Dolly movie. Usually they're <laughs> aimed at men. Like Top Gun Maverick, that's a Dolly movie. You wow. can sell a Dolly plane with it and stuff. All the superhero movies, they're Dolly movies so to me true. too. So true, so true. And I would say to a degree, often they do utilize politics in them. But I think to this one, this is openly a political film. Exactly. And we- it's what it, what it's what motivates this film. Which I think which is which is why I think it's justified to critique it on its political grounds. Because that's the that's the grounds that it invites us to yeah. consider it on. Um, is like, is its political message enough yeah. or Kenneth, as it <laughs> says in the movie? Yeah. Actually, another one of my like liked parts of the movie was that literal visual gag yeah. where Ken is wearing the tie dye fleece that says, I am Kenneth. I loved it. <laughs> I also loved, I loved the uh, Ryan Gosling dance sequence that like feels like Greece. It feels like all that jazz. There's something about that that I just, I mean, I love dance sequences movies. I know. Sue you me. Do. Guilty. I, know I love you do. it. I thought that was wonderful. I do think all the performances by Will Ferrell, I think, are all really great in this movie. My main thing that I wish I had done, I actually think this movie would have improved a great deal if it had just another pass over, like a little punch up by another married writer duo. <laughs> if Bonnie and Terry Turner, who did Wayne's World and like <laughs> Coneheads, all the SNL movies from the 90s that this film is like playing towards, they did like Third Rock from the Sun, like they're the kings of the freaking like fish out of water type thing yeah i actually think if they had if there was a, a pass that was a bit more of a broader comedy that actually sure, might have helped sure, balance sure. out some of like the more emotional uh the more emotional speaking to directly to an audience moments they actually might have been cushioned a little bit more and like perhaps made it work where it didn't feel like a, I wouldn't didn't get whiplash from those turns. Well, the reason I think we got whiplash is because of Mich- is because of Mattel's influence. Yeah. Because, because I highly doubt that that Greta and Noah sat down and were like, we're going to write this really earnest monologue that kind of doesn't have any place in the movie that just kind of feels mm. tacked on. It 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 feels like that's what that was what that was a concession. I wonder. I don't know because I think that like Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are such. I think they're brilliant filmmakers. I agree. And I think that they are fantastic writers. I also think that part of this is they thought as hard as you possibly could about how do you make this movie. Yes. And how do you get it to speak to people and how do you get them to translate the feelings you have with the things of your past. I think think that they were... I, It's hard to know they did it successfully. For me, it wasn't a success to do it that way. But it's just like they you, they thought about as much as you possibly could. And what they delivered was the product or something of, of they that had such an in-depth thought about this. And I just don't know if, if that aligns with it being like a nice, funny, bright, silly comedy. You see the overthinking in the in the actual movie as well, though, right? Because like there are so many jokes and so many asides in the movie, which kind of, you know, like are are winking to the audience, being like, yeah, we get it. This is a corporate product. Or like that line from Helen Mirren oh as, my a, God. as a narrator being like, note to filmmakers, like Margot Robbie's not the right person to cast. Wow. You want to make a point about Barbie not being pretty. Oh my God. I got it. We, on, we need to talk we about this up, line. I, we got to talk about this line. I think Helen Mirren as the narrator, I hated that. <laughs> I don't think that this needed a narrator. And if it did, they just picked like, well, who's a female voice that narrates stuff? Helen Mirren. <laughs> I was like, it's like if you did the like um, the male version with like G.I. Joe and it's narrated by Morgan Freeman. Like, it's just like, that's the narrator voice. I think you have to do a little bit weirder. Like, get Rhea Perlman, continue her cameo sure, in the vocal department okay, or something. Okay, yeah. I actually thought that was like really lame. And I was like, that's, to me, there's so much taste going on in this movie. And this shows a distinct lack of taste to have her <laughs> doing this role. And then I hated that joke. I hated I that hated joke. I hated that joke as well. It was like, it was a movie-killing joke to me, almost. It, it was the epitome of, like... like Noise escaped my head. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't a laugh, mate. It was the epitome of, like, everything they were a- attempting to do with, like... You know, like, it feels like they were at least a little bit, like, embarrassed of making a movie for Mattel. Yeah. And therefore, you get this string of jokes peaking with that one which are kind of like it's it's defending itself it's critic proofing as i've said yeah. um which again like n- once again not to self-aggrandize the role of the critic but like it's almost like they're, they're defending against accusations that that they're too corporate or, or that they've sold out yeah. by like by preemptively proving that they're not oh oh my god which is very grating very grating 
Barbie. It's in cinemas now. Everyone go see it. Give money to the give money to everybody. Let's make this let's make film be amazing. I think uh Oh, they have the money. They have the money. I actually think that this is on the whole, I think this is going to be gr- much better for screen culture. I think it's mm. going to be, hopefully, I think it's going to lead to more big budget comedies that can utilize audiences, more films directly aimed at female audience. Uh, I, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be much better for the ho- for the whole of screen culture that this film exists. I really hope so. I feel like I, I am a little bit more suspicious than you are on that because I feel like we've had huge movies like this, right? Where I mean. It, even if they're not as quote unquote weird as Barbie the movie is, like we've always had movies rake in hundreds of millions of dollars, of dollars on, on opening weekend. And the only result we see from that is that more funding goes towards like these corporate tent yeah. poles and less funding. They are fu- making 45 ma- Mattel Exactly. They're making now. 45 Mattel movies and less funding goes towards, you know, small indies. Weirdly, right now, we're in a position where it doesn't matter because of the strikes, only yeah. indies can basically be made under the strike because they're not part of the uh, producers, uh, the producers corporation, whatever you want to call it. That perhaps is still the pathway at the moment. And studios, they know le- they less know what to do with a success than a failure. They can mm-hmm. they can easily learn from failures, from successes like this, where it's such an ungodly success. These two films yeah. landing together at the same time. I think they're going to struggle to figure out what lessons they need to learn from it. Absolutely. And I think that the lesson they think they need is like, let's make a Barbie 2. Mm-hmm. And immediately you see what <laughs> Warner Brothers has done. They're like, okay, well, uh, we're not going to release June this year. <laughs> and that's like, that's what their first thing instinct is because of the strikes ongoing. Yeah. It's like, okay, let's push everything back. It's like, movies are to talk of the town again. What are you doing? You should be fucking making it come out next week. What are you... Like, that's crazy to me. I do wonder, though, how much of that is because, like, the actual teams themselves want to be able to, to promote their movies. Because mm-hmm. I know that at least, like, for, like, Challenges, the yeah. Luca Guadagnino movie with Zendaya, yeah. etc., I think he actually requested that movie be moved back. Yeah. Which is why it's no longer opening at Venice. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of every bisexual everywhere. Oh, well, you know, hopefully there's a few more battles to win. Yeah. All right, we have a little bit more time left. Shall we discuss Oppenheimer? Let's talk Oppie. We're at war. Didn't need a charge. There's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world. We're in a race against the Nazis. I have no choice. It's going to be enough to end the war. To end the war. Seven, six, five, four, it's happening, isn't it? Two, one. Oppenheimer in theaters July 21st. Read it all. So Oppenheimer, it's the latest film from Christopher Nolan. It's a biographical film about Oppenheimer, the guy that invented the, the secret ingredient that made the atomic bomb. Like I said, I'm not usually one to go in for like big epic biographical films, especially that are like pitched to this degree. I'm not really a war film person mm-hmm. uh, in, in any kind of capacity. But every now and then there will be one that does something so interesting or so so exciting. I actually think Oppenheimer is that film for me this time. Yeah, where I actually think that it is is Christopher Nolan's best distillation of what he does, which is his style, his weird little peculiarities, like the little the strange little touches that he brings to a movie, and combined with like its source material and a fantastic cast to actually express something quite powerful. Mm. And maybe the key ingredient is, I actually think this is an emotional movie. And I often accuse his films of being unemotional. Soulless. Soulless or cold. I actually think that this captures the, a, a really wide gamut of human emotions, especially in finding the micro story in macro, the macro mm-hmm. world, world of history to dig down and find out like, what is that story? And I think the thematic of this being like, no one does anything for the greater goods. Like it, it does begin as like Oppenheimer's quest to do something for the greater good, but I think it immediately becomes corrupted. I actually find that to be a fascinating way to tell this story. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm completely on the same page as you. I feel like when I watched this movie, I had just come out of Barbie. 
the day before. I had just written my Barbie review. So I think I was very much like, I'm going into this completely just like no thoughts. Mm-hmm. And what I and in fact what I ended up with was just vibes, bro. <laughs> as they say. And I think Christopher Nolan, like, that's where he actually succeeds. I think so. It's just like complete and utter. It's just like you just get this like string of images, like one after the other. And and obviously, like the way they're edited in all his movies, but especially in Oppenheimer, is like, as my dear friend Luke Goodsell described it, it, it was like a three-hour trailer. Yeah. Um, which to me actually very much worked because you get this like unending score which just like keeps going and going and all the images, it's just like, it never actually settles long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from like maybe a couple scenes, including the scene where the actual test explosion goes off in the movie. Um, but it never actually settles long enough for you to like fully, you know, be like like thinking around your mind, being like being like, what is this movie actually about? Blah blah. And it's not until the actual end of the movie that that you feel the full force of what has just happened over the past three hours and all the kind of like repu- reputational discourse around like the men in this movie and like all the impacts on history and politics and science, et cetera, et cetera. It is emotional montage filmmaking at yeah. its heart. And I think that's what makes this work really well. And it has these like two test letting timelines. Three. Three. Is yeah. Actually, correct. Thank you for correcting me. I was wrong. <laughs> it is three. And they are stylized really differently. Like there is the main forward propulsive timeline that begins at like, you know, when Oppenheimer's in university or whatever. Yeah. And then we've got this second timeline, which is later in the 1950s or late I think 50s, 50s in yeah. 1950s where it is Oppenheimer on some kind of kangaroo court trial basically yep. in these closed doors of this office um, it is just all set basically in one room mm-hmm. in real time on this trial and then there is a third timeline which is led by Robert Downey Jr as Strauss um, and it is him I sitting in front of Senate, like basically yeah. to be let into whatever American office. I'm not an American guy. I don't fucking know <laughs> the politics off the top of my head for all of these all these positions. And I think there is some genius in Christopher Nolan where he has constantly worked in tessellating timelines. Mm-hmm. And I think each time he cracks that code a little bit further. Sure. And with sure, this sure. one, there is a moment where they all in they where all these timelines it makes sense why they're being told in this yep. order and it completely unlocks. And I think there is quite a powerful moment in when that happens and when you understand it. Because I think the first hour of this film is so propulsive and so like it pushes forward so nicely. Like I just, it, it was like bang, bang, bang. It all happens. Absolutely. And every third scene is like a spark forming, like like that kind of abstract imagery. It's it's like- The yeah, surreal it, imagery of what quantum quantum space and quantum Looks like is. In, in Oppenheimer's mind. Mm. Yeah. And then there's this moment where all these things kind of converge and it just makes sense why they've been laid out in this way. And I think it is- Quite, and I love to say about about Christopher Nolan, it is brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) It just really works. And beyond that, I think it's Killian Murphy's best performance since The Wind That Shakes the Barley or something. I think he's freaking phenomenal in this film. I think he's phenomenal in it. I think he he is able to find who the man is and play the complexity of it. I think that Robert Downey Jr. has maybe never been better in any film. (laughs) I think he's. I think he's sensational in this movie. Uh, like the, there's a moment where he has to he has to change from absolute seething anger, like he's filled with hatred, and then he has to open a door and he puts on a political smile. Mm-hmm. And it's so underplayed; it's like barely registers as a moment in the movie. Yeah. But I just thought it was just perfect. I know the exact moment you're talking about. And I couldn't agree more. And I think it's like, I think RDJ is very interesting in this movie because, mm-hmm. especially because, you know, he's come out in, in interviews and said um, like that his acting muscles have atrophied after mm. years in the MCU. Yeah. So it's nice to see him be in that kind of like full, full gamut of emotion again here. And it's a transformative performance. You can barely recognize him literally. And he doesn't even, he, it's his voice coming out of head, but it doesn't sound like his voice. And it, but it does sound like his voice. I think he, it's complete characterization. He's found, I think he, 
he and Ryan Gosling should be up together, the best <laughs> supporting actor. The other person I really loved in this movie, David Krumholtz, one of my favorite character actors. Who does he play? He plays Oppenheimer's little buddy that they went to uni okay, together, the schlubby guy, uh, two, the two New York Jews, as they keep talking about each other. Sure, sure, sure. Just, I loved him. And I think it's uh, he's hit his stride as a character actor. We need to talk about the cast in this movie because there is like some, there is like some like monkey part of my brain mm-hmm. that afterwards I was like looking at the cast list and, and like- there is definitely part of this movie that plays almost like a Where's Wally. Yeah, there's on, a not an unrecognizable on the face. Cast. It's like in a dream where you can't f- create faces. You have to cast people yeah. from your real world. It's like <laughs> that. You go in and it's like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I know this person. Everybody's recognizable. And like, I will, like I'm not going to lie to you. Reading the cast list, I was like, I did not realize half these people were even mm-hmm. in the movie. Because yeah. so, many, so many of the cast have at most 15 seconds screen Who are you time. looking at? Um, I'm talking like Kenneth Branagh I did not realise was in the movie at all Matthew yes. Modine I did not one know one of your faves I love Matthew <laughs> Modine I love him um, someone, someone I did notice was Josh Peck yeah I knew he was going to be in it because there was an announcement Josh Peck is going to be in exactly. Oppenheimer and I was like well normally movies they don't announce just if there's some guy going to be in it he presses the button <laughs> Presses the big red button. Someone in my cinema <laughs> genuinely gasped out loud when Josh Peck's face appeared on screen for the first time. So wow. there was no way I was not recognizing him. But also, okay, this is my this is actually probably my my favorite random member of the cast, mm-hmm. Devin Bostick. Do you know who this is? The name is familiar, and I don't know why. Devin Bostick, best known for playing Roderick in Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Um, Whoa. But let me tell you his filmography, because mm-hmm. I actually saw a tweet this morning where I was like, this guy has the craziest filmography of yep. all time. So uh, so he was he started in American Pie, I'm pretty sure. Okay, wow. Diary of, of a Wimpy Kid. Then he went to the Saw franchise. Oh, my god! Then Okja... <laughs> Excuse me? Then Aksha. <laughs> then he was... Then at some point in his career, he was a lead role in an, a Tom Agoyan movie. Sorry, sorry. Adam Agoyan. Adam Agoyan. I've yeah. never heard that name said out loud. Yeah, so. you've only read it in print. Exactly. I'm actually. of the era where he was one of the first names I heard in podcasting. <laughs> his films are very popular during the dawn of podcasting. Adam Agoyan. Um, and then he goes to Oppenheimer. This man has actually wow. has ha- does have the craziest filmography. Wow. Holy shit. What's the Adam Agoyan movie that he did? He was in Adoration. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. not... Not the adoration with Naomi Watts. It's the other adoration movie that he did. I'm looking for the Naomi right Watts now. one. Is the Australian one where it's like um, these two boys sleep with each other's mothers. Oh, Xavier Samuel no, and James I've, Freshfall. I, I've actually seen that. No, d- different adoration. Different yeah. adoration. Yeah. Um, wow. But Devin, Devin Bostick, Bostick, Devin something. Devin like, Bostick. Devin wow. Well, congrats, man. He should yeah, be up for an Oscar. He's as well. doing it all, and I and I even remember him in the, him in the movie. Let me see his face. Wow. You know who this guy is. That's um fucking crazy, dude. Talking about names that I also can't pronounce out loud. Um Olden Olden Aaron Reich. Olden Aaron Reich. Han Solo himself. Thank you. I think he was great in it too. I agree. That scene where, you know, like like him and him and him and Artie J shared this almost like three seconds where they kind of like goofing with each other in the office when RDJ is kind of explaining his whole master ploy. Extremely homoerotic scene. Yeah, beautifully played. Beautifully yeah. played. Also, Rami Malek. This guy's a best no, actor winning I, Oscar. I'm what le- is he doing I'm in leaving. this movie? I'm leaving. I don't know what he's there. Why Ra- is he there? Rami Malek like, genuinely takes me out of any movie I see him in. I did not know. He was the one person <laughs> that kept a secret from me. I didn't know I was going to be in this movie. Uh, what was he? It was an Easter egg just for you. I, th- I don't know what he's doing. The guy should be, he should be a Ken. I'm no like I'm so glad he's getting no work. I, I'm going to say that much. <laughs> wow. Like, okay. I mean, in in every single in every property he's been in since Mr. Robot, when I see Rami me. Malek, I'm like he's just Rami Malek. Have you seen that video? Surely you have. Probably like four years ago, where, where he he's gets like pissed at a fan. No, there's no, one wow. where he's talking direct to camera. It's like an ad for something, and he's just like. Oh, it's a warm hug from your mom or something like that. Oh, it's a re- it's like just like a strange video. Where he, his speech pattern sends me a chill down my whole fucking... <sighs> down every part of me. Starts at the toe, ends of the year. It's strange. Strange <laughs> oh, man. Awful, awful, awful. And yeah, he probably did sign a deal with the devil to get that Oscar. But anyway, uh, Oppenheimer. The, I really love Florence Punit. Loved Emily Blunt in it. I wish there was a little bit more of them, but it's a three-hour movie. What are you going to do? We need to talk about the sex scenes, talking about Florence Pugh. Because oh, my gosh. There was also discourse around this. Did you see someone? Yes. I pr- thought Killing Murphy was going to hang Hog. 
That exactly. <laughs> we there thought was, we would at least be getting balls. There was something you know? I read where it's like Florence Pugh and Killian Murphy are naked for one third of this film. We're like, what the hell? Maybe one third of a minute. Honestly, like, in my head, when I read that, I was like, so he's naked working on the bomb? <laughs> like, I imagined he was like, you know, tinkering with the bomb, putting stuff together, and he's nude for some reason. Jesus. I mean, it's Christopher Nolan's, I think, maybe his second or third sex scene ever. I think it might be the first time he's ever shown wow. sex on camera, right? Yeah, like, maybe. It, and they did it for real. There's this. <laughs> it's a snuff film. <laughs> there is um, there is this like one take where where someone posted being like, um, and the sex scenes in this movie, they're sex scenes only Christopher Nolan could do, mm. and that kind of sent the internet ablaze because everyone was like, what What does that mean? Like, yeah. what? Like, what do you mean? It's only a sex scene Christopher Nolan could do. And it makes sense. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, it makes sense. As soon as you see the movie, sense. like, okay, that exactly. makes sense. Who else would stage it like that? Who who else would would have would have the freaking man like speaking in Sanskrit? You know, I a know. second after Coitus. Wow, it's uh, it is wild. I hope he starts making more erotic movies. Wow. I want to see his lens on that kind of stuff. Uh- I want to see Chris Nolan as like our like modern day Paul Verhoeven, but wow. like in ten years' time, We're mark my words. Mark We're not ready. Words. I'd love to see him do a big screen remake of Boys in the Sand. That's <laughs> that's what I really want to see him. do. I think you might be the only person in the world who wants to see that. But well, it's on the record now. Let's it's on the see. record to, from this podcast to God's ears. Um, we ended our Barbie review with a discussion of a line reading. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is one kind of similar line reading in Oppenheimer that we need to talk about. I, I, I'm not sure whether you're going to anticipate what what this mm-hmm. is. It happens towards the end, at the end of the movie where um, RDJ has just found out some, like, you know, devastating news for mm-hmm. him. And there's... For us, not so much. <laughs> for, for us, great news. Yeah, for us, <laughs> there are a lot of Oppenheimer, not so much. But there's this, like, there's this hilarious line where he's like... Who voted against me? Oh, and then, yes. And then Alden is like, "It's this little guy from Milwaukee, or like whatever." Yeah, a little guy from Boston. His name, John F. Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> What's the F stand for? <laughs> like, it's this insane line where it's dropped like it's an Easter egg, yeah. right? Like, it is. I mean, that's how we interpret movies now. Exactly. Did you stay for the post-credit scene <laughs> where you see him take office? No. It's well, sorry, amazing. wait, was there actually a post-credits yes. scene? I, you- no, I'm just making it up. They got Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> <laughs> he walked up, he takes office. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. As Wonka. As Wonka. Yeah. Oh, God. that Now that's the movie. I want to see Wonka take America by storm. Exactly. Now listen up and quieten down. <laughs> <laughs> wait, scratch that. Reverse it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Before we look back in history, is there anything that you would like to direct our listeners towards, any of your work? You can catch all my writing at Guardian Australia and ABC Arts. Um, and I guess you can find me online at michael.pdf as well. Beautiful, Michael. And Michael is a great writer. I I, I love your critics so much. So thank you so much. Please check it out. Please read it. Uh, you're on Twitter and I, Threads. I am, Well, this is a very controversial topic because I've actually given up on Threads. Whoa, you were the first Threads I, celebrity. I was a Threads <laughs> early adopter. You were the first influencer in Australia. And I'm telling Australia. you now, Threads is over. Threads wow. is over party. Good Lord. You hate to hear it. You hate to hear hate it. To hear it. I also don't use it anymore. I, w- I liked it wow. for a second. I don't think anyone's using it anymore. There's too much stuff. It's I don't want to see the people I follow on Instagram posting all this stuff. Also, Twitter is back. You know, there it's was a called second- X, isn't it? Did they change it today? <sighs> I don't know if that. I mean, like. Who knows? Who knows? All I want to point the listeners towards at the moment is I think it is still available pre order. It might go on sale soon, but I did a commentary track with uh, great filmmaker Trav Akbar for the Peter Weir film, The Last Wave. Huge. The new 4K restoration and release of that film by Umbrella. Uh, I did the, the audio commentary for it. I'm very proud of it. Check it out. It's a great film. Um, if you're a cinephile from Australia, it is your duty to watch Australian classics. Or, or even overseas. And overseas too. I know we speak to a, we speak to an overseas audience and it is your duty overseas to, ex- to accept Australian culture. Exactly. All right. Let's get into this time in history. I am looking at this week from many years ago. One of them that strikes me in particular, Michael, I would love your thoughts on this. In 1948, Warner Brothers unleashed a new character onto the world, Marvin the Martian. 
Do you know Marvin the Martian? Okay, can I just say, I've actually been terrified for this part of the podcast the entire time because <laughs> I, I actually saw this guy on your screen yeah. come up at the very beginning and I was like, I don't know who the hell this guy is. <laughs> well, Marvin the Martian. I'll explain it. You can react to it. Okay. Marvin the Martian, he's a character from Mars. He talks like this. And that's actually a dead-on impersonation of who Marvin the Martian is. I think that should be your natural speaking voice. I think I'm trying to adapt to it. Yeah. I've got a little bit too... My voice is too deep. I want to go a bit higher. Marvin the Martian, he came around in the 40s, but in my lifetime, mm-hmm. you would have been too young to remember this. The turn of the millennium, Okay. the world went absolutely fucking psycho for Marvin the Martian. I don't know what it was. I cannot point to it, but there was a point in time where not just me... Everyone was obsessed with Marvin the Martian. What? He became like the go-to Looney Tunes character. You would see him on fucking satin boxes, on everything. There was something... And he had like... um, They drew him with a lot of attitude. He was like the no <laughs> rules guy. He was like, the, you know... He was used on like decals and stuff as a character with attitude. That's kind of camp. It, honestly, now it is camp. Yeah. But I think at the time it probably lined up with... um. New metal. I don't know why. I think <laughs> well, Marvel the Martian and New Metal speak the same language. New metal, a genre that is actually famously camp now as well. Yeah, it's true. Given you the watch, resurgence. You watch Mission Impossible 2. It's a camp classic <laughs> now. Yeah. Um, my question for you. So, mm-hmm. so, so, who do you think is like the 2023 Marvel the Martian? Like, like, who's the character that is inescapable now? Wow. But was drawn years ago. Oh, fuck. That's such a good question. Maybe Barbie. Barbie, perhaps. Uh, but like... But I don't... Because there's something about like the reinterpretation of him. Maybe it's Mario. Maybe it's because oh, Mario's so okay, big now. Again. Okay, interesting. But I'm also thinking like maybe Pikachu because Pikachu exists as a meme. Maybe in your circles. <laughs> well, yeah, like, you don't see that shocked Pikachu meme online. True. Okay, sure, 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 sure. I don't know. Now I'm, now I'm questioning my age and uh, <laughs> who I am, how wizened I am. I've been told that I do the shocked Pikachu face in real life a lot. I, like, you know, absolutely maybe no that's reason. why it can, came can, to mind. Can you picture it? I don't know. I've, absolutely. It didn't take me a second to picture great, it. I've seen great. it. <laughs> maybe that's why I reject its power Who so else much. do you think? Madeline, the little orphan? Yeah. <laughs> I actually have been seeing a lot of Madeline on TikTok. Really? I can't lie to you. Wow. And like every time we see it, I'm like, I try and scroll past. And my partner is actually obsessed with Madeline wow. because he was like, um, I mean, like, he's like literally two years younger than me. So I don't know like how, like why it's so big in wow. his world, but he was like fully Did he have his appendix taken into out? Madeline lore. <laughs> um, yeah. When he was younger. Oh, who else is a contender? Do you think? I'm trying to think, I don't think I can, like, I don't think I could name any, may, may, honestly, maybe, like, superhero culture, right? Yeah, because true. Because all those characters, like, Marvel the Martian maybe the original superhero. God, maybe it's, like, fucking Rocky Raccoon or some shit. Who? He's from Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. All right, 1990, Roseanne Barr butchers the national anthem. Have you ever heard about this? No, I have not. This is... This is something that really crossed everywhere. There's, I think there's enough examples of like really bad versions of national anthems at sports games, but yep. I think it all goes back to this. She's not a singer. She's a comedian. Sure. And uh, she sung- And also now an alt-right personality. Absolutely. She's now part of that culture. She uh, sung the national anthem in a beyond tone deaf way during a baseball game between the San Diego Padres and the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, it's actually quite an iconic clip. Can we play it? I'll play you a little clip of it. Okay, it's please really, do. Uh, we're going to get a teens react live right now from I Roseanne playing, singing the national anthem. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, much like Marvin the Martian, I genuinely think this is kind of camp. Yeah, huge moment. She's got her fingers in her ears well, and say, screaming it. Especially because of the of, of the performativity. Like, she mm-hmm. literally has her ears plugged. Yeah. Like, it's kind of giving Yoko Ono. Wow. Yeah, that's my take. Wow. It's ki- like, it's kind of giving performance art and much like another classic... Of the bad national anthems category, Fergie seeing the USA national wow. anthem at the NBA game. Yeah. I feel like both of those fall into the same category of gay culture. Wow. I love when Fergie begins the national anthem. Let's get it started. 
Okay, a couple more. 1984, Princess Purple Rain is released. The film debuted on this day. Have you ever seen Purple Rain? I have not seen the movie, but obviously a song close to my heart, as it should be to everyone. I love the song. I only saw the movie for the first time a few years ago. Do you like it? It's amazing. It's way hornier than you would think. (laughs) Like I think, no, I think it's like like in my mind, it's pretty horny. He's it's Prince. He, I mean, he's very sexy and sensual in the movie. I think it's uh, I think it's great. I think you would really love it. Okay, it's a real visual feast. I was and re- for the years as well. That soundtrack, <laughs> come on. I was recently at this event at Dark Mofo that had built itself as this like three day long rave, and mm-hmm. then I was there for like the very end of it, where after this like insane techno set, they ended by playing Purple Rain. Yeah, it was like midnight and ended the show. Everyone got up on stage and like everyone was just like you know like full on fucking crying. Wow. Tears streaming down, arms around each other. It was it was beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really powerful. It's such a beautiful, it's beautiful album. Great soundtrack. Um, and you know, Prince just like no one has ever been able to do it just like him. Who do you think's the modern Prince? I'll throw the question at you now. Okay, this is you I'm- can't say Marvin the Martian. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there is like an obvious answer to this that I would personally disagree with. Mm-hmm. The answer is like the weak. That's who I was thinking as well. <laughs> I think there's something in that. Maybe less obvious answer. Maybe like you know Sufjan Stevens or some shit. Okay, that I mean, I can see the kind of like weird horniness, right? Yeah, that's like, that is the only thing I was thinking yeah, about. You yeah, can't yeah. ask me a secondary thing, <laughs> but he was the second name that came to mind. They're both. Like probably queer. Yep, they're both it's like unbelievably just like repressed sexuality. Mm-hmm. But then I feel like for Prince, it kind of like breaks out. Yeah, it breaks like, out a little bit. Whereas I think the reason Sufjan is so, I guess, so profound is because you ha- you have all that like bottled up, yeah, almost like Catholic guilt and Oof. like sexuality within. It like yeah. hasn't come out yet. Oof. So it's two sides of the same coin. I really do see it. Shocking okay. answer from you, but I see it. I I think it works. And finally, one last thing, only because I love it so much. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman's Little Shop of Horrors opens on Off-Broadway. Beautiful. Have you seen that, the film? I, I have not seen the film. I might send you home with a little Blu-ray copy you, today. You are really like, like this is like, like, I haven't felt like this since, you know, first year uni film class. Mm-hmm. I'm your new lecturer. Exactly. Welcome to my world. Dr. Teleopolis. Wow. Hey, is there any other recommendations off the back of Barbie and Oppenheimer that you think people should get into? Because I, I, I do quite like, find the value in Greta Gerwig putting her list of influences out so openly. Yeah. And I, hopefully that's something I want people to explore because there's so much like, some really good shit in there from the archers to, you know, Jacques uh, Demi to Jacques Tati. I mean, obviously, like, Playtime and Mononcle are, mm-hmm. like, must-sees if you haven't. And also, I think, you know, people who have enjoyed Barbie, mm. I think, should maybe check out another movie that was actually shot with Barbies by, of course, King of Melodrama himself, Todd Haynes, Superstar, wow. the Karen Carpenter story. This was also a recommendation that came to me mm. when I was recording another podcast about Barbie. Yeah. Um, and I believe, like, Todd Haynes was, like, faced a lot of, you know, uphill, potentially legal battles with yeah. Mattel because of his usage of Barbies in it's, this movie. I think, to my mind, I've never seen it because it's hard to find. It's pretty... Mm. It's all, I think it's a, one of those unreleasable movies because it's got like a lot of uh, copyrighted material in it. Exactly. So you track it down. It's probably not impossible to track down these it's the days. original. It's the original People's Joker. Yeah. You know? abs- <sighs> killed, killed by Big Doll once again. Absolutely. People's Joker, keep that on your mind too. I actually think People's Joker and Barbie actually kind of a brilliant double pairing. Because one is the the approved the the company approved version of like you know telling a personal story uh-huh. through this property. The other one is a fucking unofficial, unapproved <laughs> version. Uh, and I think I actually think it would be a great double feature. I agree. Yeah, okay. you sold me. I see it. I see it, it makes sense to me. I would watch those together if you can track down the people's Joker. It is starting to play. It is starting to play. It's coming back to Sydney, I think, at some point it later will this be. year. I'm sure of it. It will be. I'm. I'm saying I'm pretty, pretty yeah. damn sure we'll come back to Sydney. Come back to Australia. And if you're in America, it is starting to screen at not just festivals. There is like it is popping up around. So Huge. keep it on your radar. I think it's probably the best thing I've seen this year. I didn't put in my best of the year so far episode because I, I don't know. I didn't 
didn't it didn't occur to me at the time. But because it's you're amazing. a doofus. I'm a doofus. I'm a dingbat. And yeah, I'm freaking stupid. <laughs> uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, dude. I Lexi, love talking to you so much. So hopefully you can come back again soon. Anytime. And we apologize if you did not agree with our take on Barbie. Sorry. You can cancel us on <laughs> socials.